Malo. Small things, small things matter, y'all. I did not know I did not know when the Lord would let me stand in a pulpit again. Not just be in a pulpit. Stand in one. On my own power. I took it for granted. For 18 years. That I would jump up and run up. Up here. 18 years and then in a moment songwriter said in the twinkling one Saturday afternoon things changed quickly things were so normal we weren't doing anything bad or dangerous we were just being a family And one misstep created a problem that has persisted and will persist for the rest of my life. I mean, I'm not, you see me standing here, but I'm not healed. I'm wrapped up so tight up here with a brace on. But I got on my own shoe. Yeah. Got on my own shoe. The surgeon told me this week that it's in his surgical talk. The pictures are beautiful. And he showed them to me. He gave me copies of the picture the day I came into the emergency room. My ankle and bones all broken. And then he gave me copies of where we are today. He was happy. The surgeon's happy. And I guess he thinks he did a good job. And I can tell from his work that he's done a good job. But there were two things. I'm saying this before I get into this message that I did. And I remember this, and I'm going to share this with you. Clarity of mind matters, even in trauma. Clarity of mind matters. And on February 12th, when I fell off that ladder, I remember telling, knowing that I had a problem, a major problem. If, if nothing else told me, the blood everywhere told me. And I told Brittany to call 911. And, and I, I prayed. And I asked the Lord to help me. Help me right now. And I asked him to do a couple of things. One, you were on my mind. I asked him to bless the church. And there was an issue going on at the church at the time that I was dealing with that nobody knows today but a few people. And it has been a weight 
on me for months throughout this recovery. And yesterday, it was lifted. God is good. And it was lifted, in, in my opinion, in a way that's going to continue being a blessing for the history. But it was such a weight. It was such a weight that knowing the seriousness of my situation, I addressed it as I was waiting on the paramedics. I told my wife to tell, <laughs> I said, tell Theris, don't talk to Fiat. <laughs> Don't talk to Fioth. All right? That's cold. But she knew what it meant. And it was significant enough for me to say it. Think about it now. I'm in pain. I'm scared. My family's scared. Within a few minutes, my son had driven faster than he was supposed to come there and I'm sitting there looking at them. Paramedics from Birmingham showed up and did a fabulous job. I told them, call Larry and tell Larry to get somebody to preach for me tomorrow. Uh, that didn't go so well. But I asked the Lord to bless me through whatever, whatever I was about to go through. Because I didn't know what it was about to be, but I knew it was big. And y'all don't understand from this point. You've seen me coming in here bouncing and, and smiling, but it was traumatic. I was in the trauma. I was in the trauma section of the hospital where they put vocal men in major accidents. I had trauma surgery because they thought perhaps I had fractured my spine or my neck or something. So... All those precautions were being taken, and thank the Lord that I didn't. That didn't happen. I fell off of about a nine-foot ladder, and I saw them when I left Brittany's house, and I didn't see Karen anymore till the next day. I didn't see anybody anymore to the next day and I'd already been through surgery and was going back again and I really wasn't cognizant of what was going on really from Saturday until about Sunday late Sunday or early Monday is when I kind of got aware of what was going on um, and I stayed in the hospital until that Thursday they would have let me out on Wednesday but there was something going on with my heart. It was beating too fast. And they wanted to know what it was. And so I came to tell you this, and then I'm going to preach this sermon. Because of the seriousness of the accident, they investigated me health-wise more than they would have. If I had just broken my ankle and walked in and gotten set, then they wouldn't have done the things they did. But because they thought I had hurt 
my back or they checked to see if I hurt my back. They gave me a full body workup. I got a PT in here. They, you know, they gave me a full body workup with CAT scans, and, and they got, they got, um, so they did full body scans. And in so doing, they identified three health issues that I wasn't even aware of. Three serious, potentially serious health issues. And we've been working on those issues since then. I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known those issues were there, but for the fact that the trauma of my situation made them look deeper. And so while it's been a bad thing that happened to me, it's been a good thing, too. And the good thing has been that they now have an eye on a couple of issues that, as my personal physician says, are all manageable. All can be handled. And I'll tell you, one of them is diabetes. My family has a history of diabetes on my mom's side. Everybody. And when I had the accident, my numbers were in a diabetic range. And the doctor said that but for the fact that I had trauma, he would have diagnosed me with diabetes. But trauma does strange things to your body. Makes your numbers go up. And so he wouldn't do it. And he told me to come back in a few months, diet, do some things, and we'll see if that diagnosis has to happen. So I went back to see him last week. He didn't diagnose me with diabetes. <laughs> oh, it's still borderline. <laughs> but it ain't there yet. <laughs> Which means I don't have to have all of the medicine and stuff that goes with it. I still have the ability to control some things. Trauma hasn't just affected me. It's torn up my, my wife in ways that I can't imagine. Children are affected by it. The worst part about all of this for me is that when this happened, one of my grandboys was there. And he watched the whole thing. And sometimes he's too young to digest that kind of stuff. And almost every single time, since that day, when he sees me, he asks me about my ankle. And he asks me, is he getting better? And that level of compassion, he looks at me. I catch him just looking at me sometime and looking at my ankle because he worries about it. So don't think children aren't affected by situations that come up because they absolutely are. And I'm happy to tell him each time it's better. It's getting better. It's getting better. And I'm happy to tell you today it's better. And I didn't come up here this morning with this in mind to say, but I call, I came up here to tell you um, about this message. And I want you to know that God is so good to us. He's so wonderful. And who am I as a preacher, as a pastor, who can't stand up here and give God glory for how good he's been? I'm not trying to hide an ounce of anything. I'm not trying to hide the fact that he gave me insurance. He gave me all those things. The bill at the hospital was $200,000 when I came. I didn't have to pay that. The Lord takes care of everything. I've had so much medicine. I've learned medicines I never knew about. Uh, went from taking my normal two or three pills at night 
until <clears throat> that one time I was taking at least nine or ten pills a day. That's bad. But through it all, God has been good. And through it all, I haven't had a whole lot of pain. And that's been a blessing. So we give God glory for how good he's been. You can go through something and come out on the other side better. You can go through something and come out with a testimony. And I'm not finished going through what this issue is because I got to go back and see the surgeon in three months. Hopefully I won't have done anything in my haste to get better that makes it worse. So if you see me, if you see me dancing or doing something I shouldn't be doing, then tell me to sit down somewhere until I get better. But one of these days I'm going to be dancing again. I can tell you that right now because ain't nothing wrong with that. How many of y'all, if I ask you this question right now, can readily identify a friend you have, a good friend? I say, do you have somebody you can put on the line? Who is your good friend? Does somebody's name automatically come to mind? And I know husbands and wives say we're one another's best friends, and while that may be true, um, and I'm glad that's the case, it should, should be that way. Is that the person whose name comes to mind when I ask you that question? Having a friend in life is important. Having someone you can depend on, someone who you know is going to be there for you is so very crucial. Today, I just want to talk to you about that topic. About having a friend. You got a friend. You, you, you know what song? You got a song. You just called it. You got a friend. Whatever, whatever you say. Yeah. Just call on my name. And you know, wherever I am, I'll come running. Yeah, come on, you know it. See you again. You know that song, right? When the springs are All you gotta do. All you gotta do is call, and I'll be there. Why? You got a friend. Come on now. Ain't it good to know you got a friend? Come on now. People can be so cold. They'll hurt you. Even desert you. Come on now. Take a soul if you let them. So don't let them. Just call out my name. I knew you knew it. I knew it. And you know, wherever I am, oh. I'll come running, running, running. That's baby, it. That's it. To see you again. When the spring summer fall. All you gotta do. All you gotta do is come and I'll be there. You got free. My there is a book in scripture 
that epitomizes friendship. Epitomizes friendship. And I'm not going to say with the certainty, but I will, I will venture a guess that many of us have not read this book. All right? It's in the New Testament. And it's found between Titus and Hebrews. Between Titus and Hebrews. You got your Bible with you. I'm going to give you the opportunity to turn to find it. It's only one page. <laughs> so if you flip too much, you're going to miss it. All right. It's Paul's most personal letter. Most personal letter. And it's to his friend named Philemon or Philemon. Maybe you haven't even heard of it. I can't tell you what page to go through. All I can do in your Bible, all I can tell you is it's between Titus and Hebrew. Believe me. It's only, it's only, I can't even say it's a chapter, but it's one chapter in it. If you got it, say amen. If you don't have it, say not yet, and we'll wait on find it. Somebody may be required to help you. Anybody in here know somebody in their life who's hurting right now? Going through something? Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you going through something. Hurting. Got some issues going on that you haven't been able to figure out. Haven't been able to determine how to resolve them. Some reason people don't think that church family is the perfect location to resolve those issues, but in fact it is. I don't know what makes people think that when you come to church, you're supposed to have everything all right. You're supposed to have everything together. I do know that's the impression we give people. But most people make it to a church congregation because they heard it. My prayer is that when they come, we offer them the opportunity to be expressive in that hurt, and then we offer them the support that they need at that time to get better. Most of the time, the problems that we have in life are not resolved quickly. They're problems that take time. But it sure does help us when we got somebody to help walk with us through that time. Oh, it's so essential. And then sometimes it's better if you got somebody at your house that can help you. You got a friend at your house that can help you, but everybody's not fortunate enough to have family that supports them under those circumstances like that. In fact, if we just gonna tell the truth about it, sometimes the source of your hurt and your problem is at your house. That's the complication you have. And if that's the case, then, um, then you're struggling. And so having a venue, a place that you can come Hospital for Hurts is what I like to call church. Not only a hospital for health, but for hurts, it's also a hospital for healing uh, of those hurts. But you know some folk who hit the bottom. Some of them have hit the bottom because they made a mistake, took a wrong turn in life, and some of the offenses that, that got them there might be minor, may not even have been their fault. Some of them got issues with, like I said a moment ago, with their marriage or, or perhaps they got a job issue that rains on them. When you got an issue on your job, 
not only does it affect you on your job, depending on the circumstance, it'll follow you home. And you'll find yourself in your off time dealing with those issues as well. Uh, maybe you've lost a job, can't find one, can't, can't get the job or employment that you want. And some of that has to do with your qualifications, which you've never really boasted enough to get to the place you want. And so you find yourself going from piece of job to piece of job, piece of job. And, and those, and I don't mean pizza that you eat. I mean a piece of job, a piece of job. You end up trying to stack two or three part-time jobs together to make it like it's a full-time job. And I came to tell you today that at some point, some point in life, all that instruction that when we got when we were younger, you got to sit down. You got to prepare yourself. You got to get yourself some kind of education or training that allows you to get to a place where you can have a career and not just go from job to job. Some folk have brought the problems they have in their lives on themselves by, treat, by cheating in their marriage, or perhaps they have uh, involved themselves in excessive abuse of alcohol or drugs, and it's taken control of their lives. Everybody I know who think they can handle alcohol or drugs keep using it. Sooner or later, they show up on the day when they can't handle it, when it's taking control of their lives. And I can't tell you the number of people I've had to be involved in their lives who have struggled with this addiction, these addictions. Can I tell you something? People who tell you that they can handle it already struggling, all right? Because anybody with sense knows that an issue like drugs or alcohol will completely envelop your life. Take control of you. You will need alcohol like you need to breathe, depending on how much you have to. And I know this from a personal standpoint in my family, and I also know it from a career of dealing with it professionally. That it will take control of you. And the things that people are pushing these days are absolutely problematic. I'm going to stand right here and tell you, I don't care what they tell you about recreational marijuana use. Marijuana is addictive. Marijuana is addictive and will take control of your life. And I've seen it tear up so many folks' lives, no matter what anybody else will tell you. Now, they can, alcohol is addictive and it's legal. It's legal, all right? But you can abuse something that is legal and it can tear your life up. So I want to tell you, you have to be controlled. But once those things get into your life, you got a problem. You got a problem. And, and, and this is not the place where we need to be turning folks out who have those problems. This is the place we need to be drawing them in. Hurt is hurt. Hurt is hurt. Don't categorize my hurt as being different or more problematic than yours. Hurt is hurt. And I just need somebody who can help me deal with the hurt when I have that problem. I need somebody who can hold my hand, who can walk with me, who can listen to me uh, if I need to cry or commiserate. A lot of hurting people. A lot of hurting people. You know, the Bible shows us examples of people who struggle with these issues. But the problem we have today in our love letter from Paul to a friend is not one who is involved in the circumstances of hurt like I just described. They have a social problem. The social problem has to deal with 
the way life was for them at that time. There are three people who were involved in this, in this letter that Paul has written. Of course, the first is Paul, who's the author. And Paul writes a letter to his very, very good friend. How do I know he's his very good friend? Because he says so in the letter. He talks about their relationship. Um, we know who Paul is. I don't need to belabor the point and tell you who the Apostle Paul is. The Apostle Paul was the enemy of the church when it was first found. I will say this because I always assume that everybody in the room knows the Bible, and that's not hardly ever the case that everybody knows. But Paul was the enemy of the church who had a change of heart because of his encounter with Jesus Christ. And when he had that change of heart, he became the general for the troops, pushing the church forward. He ended up writing almost two-thirds of the New Testament. Most of the books that we read, including the current one, were written, authored by Paul. And Paul is an apostle of apostles. And so Paul is writing to Philemon. Philemon. Philemon was a Christian, watch this now, because I'm sure you're going to see the problem in this, a Christian slave owner. Oh, there's relevancy. He's a Christian slave owner. And he lived in Colossae, which is what's called today modern-day Turkey. He lived in uh, uh, Asia Minor in the Bible, but today it's modern-day Turkey. He was a close friend of Paul, and Paul probably, watch this, led him to Christ. He probably met him on a missionary journey and introduced him to Christ. Uh, we know that at that time, if you don't know this, that the churches that were meeting were meeting in-house. And so it stands to reason that because Philemon was wealthy, his home would have been offered as a place for the church to meet. And I'm it, it makes common sense that they would have met under those circumstances, which means that Philemon was not only Paul's friend, he was also a respected Christian leader in that community. But watch this now. He's a respected Christian leader, but he's a slave owner. Seems like there's a problem associated with this. And then there's a third character in this, in this um, story, if you will, and his name is Onesimus. Onesimus. I had all these names put up for you because I think sometimes we can't visualize them. But Onesimus, watch this, was a slave. But he was also a Christian. He too had been converted. But not only was Onesimus a slave, Lindbergh, this is important, he was a runaway slave. He had escaped from his master. Guess who his master was? Philemon. Yeah, he had lived with Philemon as one of his slaves. I'm not going to say servants. I want you to get the full import of the relationship. He was a slave. Why is it important that I say that? Well, as black folk, we know slavery implies I ain't got no choice. All right. Servant means I might have come and tried to be bonded out to you for whatever debt I might owe. But when I'm a slave, I don't have no choice. It's under compulsion that I'm working for you, thus giving us a clue as to why 
uh, Onesimus would run away in the first place because no one wants to stay under those circumstances if they don't have to. And so we got Paul, we have Philemon, and we have Onesimus. It's probably also true like Paul met Philemon on his missionary journey that while he was in Philemon's house, he also met Onesimus, who was probably there in bondage, which makes sense that when Paul leaves and moves on and Onesimus runs away, when he sees that Paul is in the community, he's met him before. And so doesn't it stand to reason that he would contact Paul and say, I'm here and I want to be a part of your congregation that's here. That's why we have this, this drama. Because Onesimus believed what Paul was preaching. And he, he said, whom the son sets free is what? Free indeed. And so he goes to the man who tells him that, and he says, I'm free. But there's a problem. The problem is, a runaway slave's punishment is death. And holding someone else's slave subjects you also to punishment under the law. Oh, we got a problem in this situation. And so Paul pins this love letter. And he does something that in today's cultural context would get him canceled. Paul does. In today's cultural context, what Paul does is tantamount, tantamount to being the absolute wrong decision. Paul decides he's going to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Watch this now. He's gotten the courage, gotten the resources, gotten the opportunity, and Onesimus has figured out how to run away from his master. He goes to someone he has confidence in, a friend, someone he's made, and that friend, Paul, decides that it is his obligation not only to Onesimus, but to his friend Philemon to send him back to the bondage situation that he found himself running away from. Somebody ought to say, oh my, that's a whole lot right there. I don't know. <laughs> that I could have been either one of those positions is tough. And so the central issue of Paul's short letter, his letter of love to his friend Philemon, is what should he do? Is this right? Is this right for him to send Philemon back? I mean, Onesimus back to Philemon? He's a believer now. He's converted but he's still a slave. He's still a slave. How do we deal with that? And so he writes Philemon a letter. And his letter to Philemon tells him, let me make sure you understand this about slavery in the first century, though. Slavery in the first century. Um, it was only occasionally practiced in Israel. And it was, it was never really widespread. And the reason is, is because it was regulated closely by Old Testament law. Gave them the direction on how to deal with slaves. By contrast, 
the Hebrew had the Old Testament law guiding them, which made slavery not happen often. But the Roman Empire thrived on slavery. It was the lifeblood of the Roman Empire. The Romans created a new, a conquered a new province, and when they did, they enslaved everybody there. And so it was simply how they operated. They added new slaves to the empire with every conquest. And this new slave, these new slaves provided the, uh, the, the unpaid labor, which is what slavery is, for them to grow into the greatest empire that had existed up until that time. And scholars will tell us that in the days of Paul, there were more slaves than Roman citizens. This is how widespread slavery was. In fact, it wasn't unusual. Watch this now. You talk about the slave owners here in America. It wasn't unusual for a rich Roman citizen to own between 10,000 and 20,000 slaves. Oh, yeah. Slavery was a huge, huge business at that time. Slavery was so commonplace that nobody even talked about in the Roman Empire. It was simply accepted as the way that it was. Not only that, Roman law protected slaves as being property of the slave owner. And that's why nobody talked about it because just like you can steal somebody's horse or you can steal somebody's plow, stealing somebody's slave carried the same punishment because that's all the person's worth was in the Roman Empire if they were a slave. They were just property. Now you and I ought to have a special sum in our spirit about that because at one point in this country's history, we were treated the same way. We were somebody else's property. We belonged to somebody. They treated us as an other we didn't have citizenship. And so I'm telling you right now, this is an aside and an editorial. You make sure you understand the power of voting in this country so you can go and get people in office who go ensure we have people on a United States Supreme Court who understand they don't want to go back overturning precedents. All right, because if they go back and overturn too many precedents, you and I find ourselves in a space of not being considered a person. Yeah, hurry up, Katanji. Start working on the Supreme Court. Be the moral anchor that's up there because who we have in place right now ain't helping the circumstances. And you start hollering for them to come to somebody else and be careful because sooner or later they'll be coming for you. I'm here to tell you that uh, everybody that's our skin ain't our kin. All right? Now, that's an aside, but it's appropriate. It's appropriate for us to understand that we are in a precarious situation in this country when it comes to politics. Uh, it hadn't been very long that we, too, had to march and prove to folk that we belong here in this place. And I can tell you right now, they got the wrong generation of us because ain't nobody going back. That, that, that's over. Yeah, that, that, that's over. That's over. They, they just don't know the kind they got right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, ain't no bucks and betties. We ready to go do it. Yeah, and I'm saying that because it's important. Because we're arguing over rights that don't deal sometimes with our essential essence. Who we are as a person is our essence. And when somebody else has the right to tell me I am or I am not, that's a problem. That's what we're talking about right here. In the Roman Empire, Onesimus was nothing. He was not a person to be valued. He was a, a piece of property that belonged to Philemon. That's the, that's the drama that Paul was dealing with. And Paul is talking to this man, Onesimus, who has confessed Christ to him, who has told him what his value is in life, and Paul has the unfortunate responsibility to have to advise him on whether to stay or go back. And so, knowing that the law ain't on his side, hear me, he has to appeal to another part of Philemon's character, because if it just came to following the law, people always came to just give me justice. Justice would require that Paul return Onesimus to Philemon. That's what justice would, would, would require. But this ain't the situation that calls for justice. This is the situation that calls for mercy. Mercy is what Paul needs. And so how in the world do you help under these circumstances without hurting somebody more? And Paul decided the way to help is to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Send him back. Why is this? How in the world, Reverend Sparks, can you say that Paul was a friend to Onesimus and a friend to Philemon and he's going to continue to substantiate the slave-slave owner model? How can you say that? Well, let's see if we can look into that. First of all, Paul has to practice the concept of being a healer in this situation. Oh yeah, he has to be a healer. Christianity has the power, watch this, to heal that which hurts. I'm talking to you about Onesimus being in bondage to a man, but I came to tell you that there's some folk in our congregation, and yeah, I say even in this sanctuary right now, who are in bondage to things other than a man. You're in bondage to the problems you have in your life. You've been enslaved by somebody who hasn't meant you any good for a long time, and you are struggling to break free of that bondage. You've been enslaved by a lifestyle that has been tearing up your life for a long time, and yet you're not fighting to get, a get rid of that lifestyle. You're fighting to keep it. Why? Because it's comfortable to you. In fact, if you break it, you don't know what happens on the other side. You know you've been living wrong, foul, out of line, and yet that's what you keep fighting to stay in bondage to. The power of the Christian lifestyle is that it can give you a way out of the bondage that you find yourself in if you allow yourself to break free of it. And sometimes you don't have the courage to do it. Sometimes you need somebody who can be your friend and help you get out of it. And that's what Paul is saying right now. Paul is saying, I can show you a way of living that can help you live better than you have been to live righteous, that can help you with the hurts that you have. It can heal the hurts that you have. And the first thing I got to do to you is be a righteous friend. 
I got to be a friend. How's a friend? I got a clip for you. I'm going to show you a friend. A friend. How a friend can help you. Everybody always want to be overt and put on their BFF shirt and show everybody that, you know, I got you. If you need me, just call. Sometimes circumstances just mean you show up when the problem persists and you help. That's how you show yourself a friend. Show me this clip, um, um, Greg. Y'all know this move. She done asked Sophia to teach her how to drive it. Poor Sophia stuck with Miss Millie for the rest of her life. Is that pace the store? Okay, I've got it. Top the H. Top the H. Okay, here we go. <laughs> oh, my. That was exciting, wasn't it? Yes, ma'am. I reckon it was. <laughs> Let's do the shopping. Sophia, I need some apples, raisins, cinnamon, currants, lemons, crackers, brown sugar, oranges, nutmeg, flour, salt, thyme, pepper, cloves, eggs, and some candy for the children. How you doing, Miss Mary? Hi, you, Mr. Hamilton. Nice Fine. to see you. I hope you both have a nice Christmas this year. Well, thank you very much. Same to you. Well, thank you. You know, wondering about us starting a fund for the poor colored children. It's a little late this year, but I meant to talk some of the shopkeepers about it, but we would be more pleased here and have us a fund so they can have, you know, some toys and some clothes and tell the toy or two. Yeah, I started taking driving lessons. Did you see me out there? No She's a wonderful teacher. She's been teaching me how to drive children. Have you ever thought about going to Mars? You know, I wonder what that planet is like. They call it the real planet. Do you think it looks like Hello. Hello. <laughs> I didn't make it here. Look at me, I'm driving now. Yes, <laughs> Sophia, I'm gonna drive you home tomorrow. You hear what I said, Sophia? I'm gonna drive you home tomorrow. Home? Yes, home. You hadn't seen your children in a while, have you? 
No, I ain't seen him in about eight years. That's a shame. <laughs> Tomorrow's Christmas. You can stay all day. You can stay all day. <laughs> I will drive myself back. How do we know Celia was her friend? She never had a line in that sequence of scenes. Celia never said a word to Sophia. Not one word. How do we know what she meant to her? That jail, sitting in that jail down there by the rock. I know what it's like to see. Wanna go somewhere again? I know what it's like. Wanna sing? Have it beat out you? I wanna thank you, Miss Celia. Everything you've done for me. I remember that day I was in the storm, Miss Miller. I was feeling real down. I was feeling mighty bad. When I see you, I know days are gone. I know days are gone. When you are someone's friend, they see through you what you represent. And if you have a Christian character, then you are the best testimony they can ever have. Celie never opened her mouth. Yet her testimony on the day that Sophia was struggling the most was as much a sermon as she could ever preach to her. She said, I saw you and I knew there was a God because you showed up in my moment of weakness and hurt and need. And I came to tell you today, that's what friends do. Friends don't tell everybody. Friends don't boast about it. Friends simply show up when there is a need. And Paul is showing up right now to tell Philemon, Onesimus is hurting and you need to be a, what's this? To the slave owner, Paul, only one situated well enough to tell him, you need to be not his slave owner, you need to be his friend. His friend. Paul elevates Philemon's concept of who Onesimus is through the power of relationship in Christ and shows his worth and says, you need to be his friend. Watch this. He says, Philemon, he says, for perhaps this is why he separated from you for a brief time. 
so that you might get him back permanently. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. This is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. He is preaching to the slave owner that he should see his slave as his brother. That's a friend. Watch this now. Paul is doing something that we typically don't do. How many of y'all know that in most situations when people are hurt, broken, struggling, that other people typically distance themselves from them as opposed to getting close to them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe initially when they see something going on, they may offer some help. But after a while, they're getting as far away from them as they can. As the situation gets worse, they get further and further away from them. And can I tell you, that's counterproductive to how it is because it's then that people really need somebody. We got to learn how to draw in, not push away when we see somebody that's hurting because that's the very time that they need support, they need affirmation from someone who's truly a friend. But it's not glamorous. It's not glamorous. And so what does a friend do? A friend refreshes the wounded. That's what he does. Paul says of him, watch this, he says uh, in, in verse 7, for I have great joy and encouragement from your love. He's talking to Philemon now. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He's telling Philemon, I've seen the good work you do. And because you, Philemon, are such a good person, you encourage and refresh the believers in Christ, in Christ Jesus. And so he's, by, by, by parallel, he's saying, now apply that to Onesimus. That same refreshing, because he's hurting right now. A friend comes alongside anybody that's hurting, and offers support and encouragement. They help the person struggling to cease struggling. They bring refreshment, and that refreshment is as beneficial as an ice-cold glass of water on a hot Alabama day. That's how refreshing it is. They remind the wounded people that there is a God. That's what we do. We remind people that God truly does exist, just like Celie did for Miss Sophia. So not only do you have to be a friend, this is important, you also have to be a forgiver if you're going to be somebody's friend. Whoever said that we're only supposed to get along with the folk we like? Not supposed to get along with the folk who have hurt us? harmed us, wronged us. That's not the Christian way. In fact, that's not even the model that comes out of Christ. Christ is the very definition of a forgiver. You would not be in the body of Christ if Christ were not a forgiver. Oh, I know you think that what you did in your life wasn't so bad that 
Christ couldn't let you in the door. But the truth of the matter is all sin is aberrant. No matter how you define the littleness or smallness of what you've done, you are not qualified for salvation. Christ qualified you for salvation. And in order to do that, you had to first be forgiven of all your sins. So Christ teaches us by definition that we got to forgive, but we have the unique fleshly human ability to always remember everything somebody's done wrong to us. Oh, you know you remember it. You remember somebody that did you wrong in the second grade when you were in elementary school. You can be 60 years old and see them pushing a stroller with their great-grandchildren in it. And you remember, oh, there goes Donnell. I remember when Donnell tripped me up on the playground when we were in the second grade. This is We have a unique ability to remember that. Yeah, look at him like he about to trip somebody else up. We remember that. We remember that. No matter how insignificant the slights or problems may have been, Something about the flesh in us has memory, and we continue to drown ourselves with that foolishness because we never truly forgive anybody. You think that once you become a believer, once you've been washed in the blood, once you've been washed through the blood of forgiveness, that you too would exercise that, but it's not so. You can be a, you can be a believer in Christ Jesus and petty, Yeah, you can be small-minded. You can be less than forgiving even if you have accepted Christ as your Savior because one is of the Spirit and the other is of the flesh. And unless you put that flesh under the subjection of the Spirit, you're going to continue to deal with those issues over and over again. Now, don't let me start elevating the wrongs that somebody has done you in life to truly make significant things like marriage problems and, 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 and incest and all those issues. These issues surely don't go away. And yet we walk with them and we wear them and they drown us and keep us from being less than ourselves. And all because we have not used God's Holy Spirit to allow us to forgive somebody. Forgiveness is not weakness. Yeah. It's often been said that the Christian army is the only one that shoots its wounded. We do. We do. As soon as somebody gets down, we'll take them out of the fellowship equation. We'll take them out of our lives. We'll take them out of our circle of friends. Usually it's the people who got wounded hearts that need the second chance, that need us to step in and be what we preach and say we are on a regular basis. Look at this. Everybody you know that's of note in Scripture, walk with me on this, had to give, get forgiven for something. All the stars in the New Testament, as we call them, all the notable ones had to be forgiven something in order to be who they are. Oh, I know I'm right about it because in the Old Testament, Jonah couldn't do his job until he was forgiven for what? Running away in the first place. Yeah, in the New Testament, Peter couldn't be the Peter who preached at Pentecost 
until he was what? Forgiven for cussing the girl and all the other folk out in the courtyard. Everybody had to be forgiven something. Paul, the one who's writing this letter, was killing Christians. And it wasn't until he was forgiven that he could be used in kingdom building. The very people you push away are the ones the kingdom needs, but they first need to be forgiven. Not just forgiven by Christ. They can do that by relationship with him. They need to be forgiven by us. Socially, they need to be let back in the fold. They don't need to keep coming to church Sunday after Sunday as that old alcoholic. We always put that in our mind. You know he used to drink. Well, so did the preacher. But you listen to him. You follow him. You include him in your life. Everybody used to be something. Paul was requesting, requesting that Philemon grant Onesimus second chance. That's all. Just give him, give him another chance. He said, I am sending him, watch this now, Paul laid it all on the line for y'all. He said, I'm sending him, and then he editorialized in it a little bit more, a part of myself. Oh, Paul says, if you my friend, you got to be his friend too. I'm sending him a part of myself back to you. Watch this, he said, accept him as you would me. I don't know that Paul could have made the letter any clearer to him. Onesimus has done wrong. He made a mistake. He committed a crime, but he deserves a second chance, just like everybody else. And so what does a forgiver do? A forgiver releases the sin. This is what a forgiver does. He releases the sin. In other words, he lets it go. And like Scripture says, he does not record the wrong. He does not harbor grudges. He forgets the mistake. I, even I and he, and for my own sake, God says, I will not remember the sins against you. God's character is such that he's not going to remember our sins because his character is such that if sin comes into the equation, he's got to punish it. And so for our sake, for our sake, and for his sake, for the sake of his holiness, he does not even remember what we've done. Forgiveness means I am canceling a debt. Listen to the language now. If I cancel a debt, that means it's owed to me. And that means I have the choice to cancel it. I'm canceling the debt to provide an opportunity for two things. One is repentance, and then, as importantly, reconciliation of a broken relationship. Same thing Jesus Christ does for us. He canceled our debts so that we could be a part. Do you know that? Whether you've accepted Christ as your Savior today, He's already still canceled your debt. The question is, have you claimed that and reconciled? He's already canceled your debt. Somebody ought to shout on that one. Before you even knew him, he had already 
cancel your debt. He didn't wait and ask you for permission. He had already canceled your debt. When he died on the cross, he canceled ALL all your debts. Being a friend means I'm trying to sustain you today. That's what being a friend does. I'm trying to sustain you today. Being a forgiver wipes out my yesterdays that's due to me. All right? But that leaves one more place we got to take care of tomorrow. What do I do? And I need to tell you that Paul tells Philemon he's got to be a future giver to Onesimus. Yeah, through his friendship, he's got to give him a future. He's got to teach him that the future is better than yesterday. And so Philemon is told by Paul, you now have Onesimus' future in your hand. The question is, what will you do with it? By law, you can have him executed. All right? But as a believer, as a brother in Christ, you can restore him to a much more exalted place in your life, and that is being your brother. And bring him into still service, not as a slave, but as your brother. So what is Philemon going to do? What is he going to do? I love this. Somebody ought to shout on this. This is movie worthy. Unfortunately, it's only one chapter in this letter. We don't know from Paul's hand what the result of Philemon's letter, the letter to Philemon was. But we do know from history yeah, that there was a writer and the writer was named Ignatius. Ignatius wrote this, and I love it. He said in one of his writings, he was talking about the wonderful bishop they had in their community. Somebody ought to shout on this. He was talking about the wonderful bishop they had in their community, and the bishop's name was, of all things, Onesimus. And he said to him about him in a letter that he wrote, he said, he once was the one who was formerly useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Oh, I forgot to tell you, in the Greek, Onesimus, Onesimus means useful. Ignatius writes that there's now a bishop who has been a blessing to the entire community. He was once useless as a slave, but through friendship we can extrapolate that Philemon must have forgiven him and brought him back and look at the glory of the kingdom that this once slave has become not just a believer, but the bishop of the community. And he's brought everybody else in. You don't know the heights that someone can go when God uses them. You can't even draw a line to the blessings that God is going to put on somebody. If we get out of the way, if we help them when we can, God can elevate them. 
So what does a future giver do? A future giver restores somebody's spirit, puts them back in a place. Paul wrote this to the Galatians. He said, brothers, if someone is caught up in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted to fall into the same situation. Put them back into service and do it as quickly as you can. Restoring the spirit of an individual can do marvelous things for their future. And it's very practical. <clears throat> very practical. Too often we demoralize people when they mess up. But I'll tell you this and then I'm out of here. We all bless from an invention that was created many years ago, primarily by a gentleman named Thomas Edison. Of course, he had other people who helped him, but we depend on it every day so much so that we take it for granted. But when Thomas was creating what we now know to be the light bulb, it took a whole lot of trial and error. And it was so expensive creating the prototypes for the light bulb. And it took such a long time to create them. Um, but one day, Thomas had created one of his prototypes. It was finally ready to be tested and he had invited a room full of scientists to come see him. He handed the finished prototype of the light bulb to a young helper who was in his office. And the young helper had to nervously carry that prototype of the light bulb upstairs. He had to go step by step to put it in the vacuum machine. On the last step of his journey, the boy dropped the bulb. And because it took so long to create it, they had to go another 24 hours before they could manufacture another bulb to test it. Thomas went through the process of creating another bulb so that it could be tested. And when it came out of the machine, Thomas looked around for somebody to carry the bulb. And wouldn't you know it, he called the same boy that dropped it the day before. And he gave it to him. And as we know, the rest is history. Just give somebody another chance. Just give somebody a second chance. Don't hold it over his head. That boy could have been known forever as the one who dropped the bulb and stopped us from ever having the light bulb created. Instead, he goes down in history as one of the apprentices to Thomas Edison. And who knows where else his name is written. What can you do? What can your family member do, your friend do? Stop writing people off. Stop pushing people away. Stop saying they're nothing when you don't know how to categorize what they are. Ask the Lord to bless them as only he can. In fact, ask him to bless you first with an understanding of what he's doing. I came to tell you today that the same God who offered forgiveness before you were even born is still on the job, still offering forgiveness. He's still loving us beyond our faults. Maybe today is the day you've realized that that Jesus died for you. Maybe you've been looking for a place to call your own, a place where you can grow, a hospital for healing, 
the hurts of life. I'm not going to tell you today that everything we do here at this church is perfect, but I can tell you we're trying to live better and do better, to be better every day. So I invite you to take this opportunity to be a part of the fellowship we created here over these 114 years. I'm inviting you to come and be a part of everything uh, we've done. Am I still right? 116 years, I believe. Whatever the case may be, the doors of our church are wide open. Maybe you've already accepted Christ as your personal Savior, and you're just looking for a new church family. The doors are open for you too. Whosoever will, let them come right now. The doors of our church are wide open.